Okay, so I have six o'clock and we'll see if anybody else rolls in, but we'll go ahead and get started. And hopefully you uh, were able to print out the PDF that we sent along in the email. Uh, if not, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, it's a very clear re uh, reading or writing, and uh, I think everybody will be able to follow along just fine. And so why don't we go ahead and get started. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to, I guess it's not welcome back, it's welcome to our uh, special edition of Philokalia Ministries and our reflection on repentance, which seemed fitting uh, for the holy season of Lent and the great fast. And a number of years ago, I came across a great writing. Uh, it comes from Washington, D.C., actually from the Russian Orthodox Cathedral there. And unfortunately, I do not know the name of the author. And I've been trying to figure that out for, for a good while. But it's one of the best writings that I've come across on the subject in terms of not only the clarity of thought, uh, but his use of the saints, and also the particular focus that he has on repentance, the very spirit of it, that I think he captures in a way that uh, is probably very important for our time and for Christians of our generation. And uh, you know, over these, this past year in particular, I find my mind moving more and more to the importance of constancy uh, within spiritual practice and moving away from a kind of episodic uh, practice that is often tied to uh, our celebration of the particular seasons uh, within the life of the church, which is a good thing. Uh, but sometimes uh, we are not very consistent in our spiritual practices. And we talked a little bit about this in our group on fasting, that even though within the spiritual tradition, that it was a regular part of one's spiritual life, that it's often become uh, so episodic for us that it's almost non-existent. And uh, not much is actually uh, required uh, within the Latin rite at this point. And uh, even though a great deal uh, of uh, more days uh, within the liturgical year uh, are fast days in the Eastern rites, uh, there's something of the spirit that can be missing in regard to how it is that we, we take the practice up. And uh, so constancy uh, has been on my mind, but also the importance of desire in the practice of certain spiritual disciplines, uh, but also the fostering of certain desires, I'm sorry, certain virtues, that uh, our practice of, of the faith would be more than simply discipline, but that we would develop a, a love for virtue and a love for fasting, a love for prayer, that that is always going to be something that is much stronger for us than a simple discipline or an obligation. When we come to see the beauty of certain practices, how they draw us into a greater intimacy with God, but also bring us to a greater freedom in our life, freedom from the passions, and so freedom and a greater capacity to love and give ourselves in love. And uh, this is true as well with repentance, uh, that as uh, uh, a virtue, uh, but also as a conscious turning of the self back toward God, 
that to, to love it and to see it as something that is not to fill us with shame, but rather to draw us back to the embrace of God and away from uh, the shackles, if you will, of our own sin, that it is, again, a beautiful thing to be cherished and prized. And so, uh, again, repentance is not to be something that is episodic for us, but a constant turning of the mind and the heart toward God. So I was talking about my focus shifting this year to constancy in spiritual practice, but also an emphasis on desire and uh, coming to love, again, our spiritual practices and have a love for virtue. We talked, again, specifically about this in regards to the practice of fasting. When we see how deeply it is tied to our love for the heavenly bridegroom, that we would experience within ourselves a bodily hunger, and in that bodily hunger and desire, see our desire for what Christ, the bread of life alone, can offer us. And we hear Christ himself teach about this in the gospel. When the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast, that an altogether new kind of fasting will emerge uh, after Christ's ascension, and that it will be a reflection of that desire for him and for his love. And, uh, and so this thought, I think, is also true with our approach to repentance, that we want to move away from it being episodic, even in the sense of our acknowledging our sins and the poverty of our sin and turning to the sacrament uh, but that we would see repentance as something that is a constant reality for us, a constant turning toward God. And so the spirit of re repentance is, is something that imbues all of our uh, uh, spiritual practices. All of them are meant to turn us toward God and draw us back toward him. So even when we engage in our prayer that there is a kind of spirit of repentance there, that we are turning toward God and reaching out to him for his mercy and for his love. And even the short arrow prayer that we hear in the Eastern tradition, uh, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is reflective of that, that part of our relationship with God is longing, again, for what he alone can provide us, which is uh, salvation, uh, but also the forgiveness for our sins and mercy. And uh, I, I feel that the author here this evening captures this very well. And if, so again, if we come away with one thing this evening, I, I hope it is this, that we want to cultivate repentance, again, as something that's uh, a positive virtue for us, but also something that we are seeking to foster with a kind of constancy from not only day to day, but moment to moment in regards to how we are praying. And so if you have the PDF and you've printed it out, the red print, italicized print, is just my little bit of commentary before the text itself. And uh, I'll just go through that quickly and then we'll jump in uh, to the author's writing. Uh, repentance, the continual effort of life. St. Isaac the Syrian once wrote, that for the spiritual struggler in this world, there is no Sabbath. In other words, when it comes to spiritual warfare, the struggle with the passions and temptations, there is no time for rest. 
Our vigilance as Christians, our watchfulness of heart must be constant. And this includes repentance. Uh, it's one of my favorite phrases from Isaac the Syrian, not that there isn't a Sabbath day rest for us uh, from labor, but in the spiritual life, in our relationship with God, there is no Sabbath, uh, nor certainly uh, in our practice of repentance, that we always want to be vigilant uh, of the evil one's attacks, but also vigilant in our spiritual practice that we don't fall into negligence uh, and, uh, and laxity in our spiritual practices. We must constantly be in a state of turning toward God, calling out to him for his mercy and grace. One of the unfortunate things today is that we've lost sight of this view of repentance. In large part, it is seen as an episodic reality, turning to God after committing grave sin for certain periods of time like Lent. These are good and important, of course, yet they do not speak of our desire and love for the heavenly bridegroom. An urgent longing, as well as a humble recognition of our sin, should create a constant movement of the heart, ceaselessly calling out to God for his grace and mercy. This urgency also is rooted in the reality of our mortality and the brevity of our lives. St. Nilus of Sinai writes, always remain in a state of repentance, the foundation of our salvation, for we know not the day or the hour at which the Lord will come. And so already within the writings of a few of the saints here, Isaac uh, and St. Nil or St. Nilus, that we are to be in this constant movement toward God and seeking him and using all the means that we have because we know neither the day nor the hour, that there is a kind of brevity about our life that our mortality reveals to us that should create an urgency. And that urgency should be driven by a love for the Lord and what he alone can provide, not fear of judgment or condemnation, although we have to be mindful of that, of course. But ultimately, the, the stronger uh, and more driving force for us is the love of God and desire for him. And this is what we want to cultivate the most within our hearts. So moving on to the text itself. Bishop Ignatius Briankaninov left us the following precious instruction. In order to live spiritually and to draw breath from grace, we must continually ex exhale the ashes of sin. It's a beautiful image, I think very powerful image, that as we are seeking to draw in the grace of God and to allow to transform it, that uh, at the same moment, we are seeking to expel the sin that uh, is within our hearts and so often clings to us. We sin almost constantly, if not in our deeds, then in our thoughts and feelings. Therefore, it is essential to continually cleanse our souls. In the language of asceticism, teaching on religious struggle, it is known as internal activity or attentiveness. So the active life, and we've talked about this in some of our other groups, is actually the ascetic life and the internal life are seeking to understand our sin in order that we might repent of it, uh, a cultivating uh, virtue, but also a cultivation uh, of prayer. And so we want to be 
fully and actively engaged in the spiritual life. Again, something that is, is not episodic and certainly not something that's limited to uh, a Sunday for us, but is to be something that's moment to moment uh, and also short, uh, forms and shapes the very fabric of our day-to-day -day life. So our relationship with God uh, how we pray, the state of our soul should be something that uh, gives shape to how we engage in the day as a whole. You know, our, the relationships that we have, our work, uh, but especially the time that we give over to prayer. And I think when we see our life in this sense, then how much we give ourselves over to prayer is going to be altered. If we understand the brevity of our life, our mortality, if we understand the struggle with sin, uh, as the author puts it here, we, we sin at almost every moment of our life or very frequently. Uh, we hear in the scriptures that even the righteous man sins seven times a day, that is perfectly, that there are many ways that we turn the mind and the heart away from God. If you remember some of the father's uh, Cassian and some of the others talk about thoughts and the turning of the thoughts away from God as being a form of idolatry or adultery of infidelity, that we are allowing ourselves to be captivated uh, by the things of this world to the neglect of God. And so we allow the things, the material things in our life, our work, and even our relationships at times to take the place of God and sometimes, as the author says here, we, we do it unwittingly, but constantly. And so, again, we, we see then the need for constancy in, in repentance as well. To continually repent is to pay unceasing attention to one's spiritual life, to assess and remove from it all that is questionable and foolish. Bishop Theophane the Recluse teaches us that one should do battle with sin at the moment it is born, that is, when it is only in one's thoughts. This is true battle, the invisible warfare, as it is called by the Athenite struggler Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain. The spiritual battle requires ability, God's assistance, constant and constant prayer. As, I'm sorry, hold on for one second. As the Holy Fathers of the Church write, it is pointless to weep over the sins of the past if we do not struggle with them in the present. So, our spiritual life is not a passive reality, that we are to bring everything to bear uh, on this struggle, this spiritual warfare that both Nicodemus and St. Theophans speak of, and Nicodemus says, with God's assistance, so God's grace, constancy in prayer, and ability. And ability is, you know, our capacity over time to be able to recognize our sin. In fact, we'll hear from St. Isaac the Syrian again, that this is one of the greatest gifts that we could have in the spiritual life, to see our own sin, because it allows us to repent and to turn back to God. And so our ability to, to see our own sin, uh, but also the nature of temptation, how we are often provoked uh, by the enemy, uh, how he will eventually uh, seek to draw us into communion uh, with particular thoughts and then draw us on to particular actions. 
And so being aware of how the evil one works in our life, how relentless he can be, the subtlety with which he can approach us, our vulnerabilities uh, because of our temperament or our past experience, our personal history uh, can make us more vulnerable to particular sins as well. And so developing a, an ability over time uh, to deal in the moment with the things that make us vulnerable to sin. And, and, and so from that position to be turning to God constantly for his aid and his assistance. And then I'll just one more sentence here and we'll open it up for questions or comments. Uh, continual repentance or attentiveness is that poverty of spirit of which Christ speaks in the first beatitude in his Sermon on the Mount. The call to such repentance is found throughout the word of God and the text of worship. So part of our poverty of spirit is rooted in this acknowledgement that I've talked about, this acknowledgement of our sin, but also the depth of our sin, how, how, how deep it reaches within the mind and the heart, even to those places that we aren't altogether conscious of and are aware of. And it's only through the grace of God and the light that he provides that we are able to see them clearly and so turn to him and begin to do battle with them. I thought the one uh, interesting little quote here is that it's pointless for us to weep over past sins and not to be struggling with them in the present, that we can get locked into a, a, a kind of feeling of humiliation uh, that is rooted in our past sin and uh, a kind of rumination that will go along with that, that prevents us then from trusting in the grace of God and moving forward in that spiritual struggle. And so this quote uh, here from the fathers that, you know, it's pointless for us to be looking back and not taking up the spiritual disciplines that come to us from the spiritual tradition and engaging in the battle now. And one of the things that the evil one does is constantly remind us of past weaknesses and failings. Uh, if you remember, Climacus tells us that prior to sinning, he will tell us that our, our actions are of no account and that it, they are small things in the eyes of God. Go ahead and embrace it. But after we have fallen into his sin, then he becomes the great accuser. How could you? How could you do such a thing as a man or woman of faith? And so we'll seek to draw us into a kind of despondency uh, that keeps us either stuck where we are or stuck in the past. Whereas we hear from the fathers that we have to live in the moment. The spiritual battle is not won in the past or the future, but right where we are now. And in this very moment, that we would be turning toward God, that we would remember God, that we would be seeking his grace in whatever circumstances that we might find ourselves in. So even in the midst of this group, that uh, we should not be so focused upon what's being said that our minds become and our hearts become abstracted from, from God. And uh, sometimes that can happen uh, at, in, in spiritual talks or lectures, 
that we can become absorbed in the abstract and lose sight of the praxis that is tied to it, the practical aspects of the faith, but more importantly, uh, the intimacy with God and the urgency that we are to have in our heart. And so uh, I've mentioned, and the author has mentioned here, constancy in prayer. And so something like the Jesus prayer should so form our mind, our heart, our consciousness, that we are constantly turning to God in our very depths. Uh, one of the, the groups uh, that I had recently, in fact, this morning, was on a little book by Anthony Conieris called The Beginner's Introduction to the Philokalia. And the title of the chapter that we looked at was entitled The Inner Closet. And the fathers speak of this place within the heart that is like the reception room for our meeting of uh, uh, meeting God, and that we are constantly to be moving there to prepare ourselves to encounter him uh, through the praying of the Jesus prayer, and that we are aided in this process and engaging in it continuously uh, by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. That one of the great gifts that is given to us through our baptism is that we're temples of God, temples of the Holy Spirit. And so our poor prayer, uh, even said on the surface level, was taken up by the spirit that dwells within us and perfected. That spirit of love, that the spirit of God that dwells within us, that cries out with groans too deep for words, that searches the depths of our hearts as well as searches the depths of God, takes hold of our prayer and elevates it, perfects it, and raises it up to God. And on our part, the struggle that we are to be engaged in is fostering this remembrance of God and this constancy of prayer and this turning towards him that is repentance. And so if we, if we make repentance, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the text, only tied to those times when we fall, say, into a mortal sin, and that we find ourselves going to confession to seek the grace of the sacrament, we haven't captured the fullness of what repentance is to be for us. It is that movement of turning towards God that, as we've talked about in some of the previous groups, there's no static position in the spiritual life. That urgency of love is to move us constantly towards him. And if we aren't fostering that through repentance or through this constancy of prayer, then we are going to be drawn away from him, or we're going to be drawn into greater and greater distraction, God will become an abstraction for us, pushed out to the margins of our life, rather than the, the, the very means through which our, our life is shaped as a whole. And so what this author puts before us, and I think what the saints put before us, is that you know, every, we can't compartmentalize our faith life as we compartmentalize so many other aspects of our life, that it is to touch the, the very fabric of our being uh, as those who have been made sons and daughters of God, that what has been given us through our baptism and what takes place through having the Holy Spirit dwell within us 
is that we've been elevated to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity. And this is not something that we can compartmentalize, put, push off to the side while we are engaged in other realities of our life that are important to us. And I'm not trying to say that they're unimportant, but that relationship with God should be shaping everything that we are engaged in. Again, how we work, how we engage people in relationships, how we love them, how we forgive them, the gentleness uh, with which we engage them and tenderness uh, with which we approach them when they are suffering, that all of this is to flow out of this relationship with God that shapes our life as a whole. Okay, so I've been yammering on for a good while here. Maybe I'll take a breath. And uh, does anybody have any comment or question? I see a few here. Uh, Charles says, what gets or causes, gets us trapped into thinking of past sins? Well, uh, I think I mentioned part of it. It is the evil one himself that to constantly bring it before our minds is uh, to hold it within the memory. Uh, and so to draw us back there once again and to draw us down by shame into a spirit of despondency. And despondency is typically thought by the fathers to be one of the most difficult of the vices to overcome uh, because we are often drawn down into a kind of spiritual depression, a darkness that makes us feel that our prayer has no worth or no value that our spiritual exercises uh, do not bear fruit for us, that God is not really present in our life in a way that we can feel or experience or see in uh, the, the fruit of our day-to-day -day life. And so his drawing us back to those past sins keeps us from moving toward God and the mercy that he's constantly holding out to us and the love that he desires to share with us. Uh, if we think about St. Augustine saying that, you know, our hearts are restless to, until they rest in thee, that what Augustine came to see very clearly that, you know, God creates us uh, for himself and this relationship. And we do not experience our, ourselves as being complete or whole unless we are engaged fully within that relationship that unless that desire within us is being responded to through turning toward him. And so if the evil one can draw our thoughts back to these past sins, he's keeping us from turning to the one who alone can give us a sense of fullness, a sense of our true dignity and destiny within him. The other thing that keeps us trapped there, I think is memory that memory for us, as we've talked about in some of our other groups, uh, is a very powerful thing. And it takes a depth of prayer uh, in order for it to be healed. That uh, things that have happened to us in the past, even when they become unconscious to us, where they're not part of our conscious memory, can be triggered uh, by any number of things that happen to us in our day-to-day -day life or specific temptations that uh, draw us either back into a similar sin 
or just draw us back to the memory of it in order to uh, in order to darken our experience of our relationship with God and weaken us in the spiritual life. And so this is why there needs to be this kind of constancy and a kind of vulnerability before God, uh, allowing what he's already given us, which is that spirit that searches the depths to enter into us ever so deeply and, and to bring that healing balm into the deepest recesses of our hearts and even of the unconscious in order that we might be healed. Uh, to enter into a relationship with God is uh, to express a kind of a willingness to be vulnerable, to let the defenses drop and uh, not to hide the things that we would even hide from ourselves. And I think one of the great gifts that we've been given certainly is the gift of confession, that uh, in this particular frame, we're able to in experience the presence of God uh, and his healing grace in a privileged, but also in a very concrete way. And uh, because it's done under the seal of the confessional, it allows a vulnerability to exist there that we might not speak to anybody else in our life, even our own spouses uh, or those who are closest to us within the confessional. We can find ourselves opening our minds and our hearts to God in such a way that he can bring us that healing. Uh, but sometimes, again, I think uh, the evil one or our own negligence or laziness will keep us from turning to the very things that will bring us healing, that will free us from this feeling of being trapped in our past sins. And so we find somebody like, for example, Pope John Paul, St. Uh, John Paul II, telling us you know, we should go frequently. And we know that he went at least weekly, sometimes daily, given the nature of his responsibility and his role within the life of the church. And we've often talked about Philip Neary, for example, in this group that uh, depending on the individuals that he, he was engaged with and how he sought to renew the faithful in Rome during the Counter-Reformation was making himself radically accessible within the confessional, 12 hours a day, you know, or taking the latest mass in the day, which was noon at that point, daily mass. And so starting hearing confession at dawn and then uh, until he offered Holy Mass, uh, precisely to make himself as accessible as possible, and day and night, leaving a key for people to be able to let themselves in if they needed to go to confession. And it was through uh, the, the grace of the confessional that he was able to help revitalize the faith of those in Rome at that point. And Rome had, you know, had grown very corrupt, uh, the faithful had grown very lukewarm or jaded because of the corruption within the life of the church. And so Philip making himself available, not just in terms of his personal counsel, but making himself available to offer the most profound grace, the most profound gift that he could uh, give to others through, through this great sacrament. And th thereby then prepare them to receive Holy Communion frequently as well which was not very common back in that time, so that having been strengthened and healed by confession, that the fruit that the, uh, of the grace that they would receive within 
the Holy Eucharist would also bring about the greatest transformation in them as well. And so I know that was a long answer to your question, but there are a lot of things I think that can keep us trapped uh, in the past and uh, keep us from developing this trust in God's mercy. And uh, I think in the past, and we were talking a little bit about this morning, is that uh, humiliation was often a way of teaching, not, hum, hum, not teaching people humility or truthful living before God, but uh, diminishing them. Uh, whether it was in a teaching context or even within uh, teaching religion, that uh, to have this uh, negative anthropology rather than having this sense of what God has made possible for us and his son, but keeping before us the, the most beautiful person, keeping before us the image of the most beautiful person that we might see what God has made possible for us by his grace and mercy. And so there needs to be this shift for us because if we are driven by, you know, this sense of humiliation, guilt, shame, we're going to be pulled to the past rather than toward, toward God. And so this is why, again, it is important for us to talk about repentance in these terms that it would be something that we would love, that we would not see it as something that is rooted in shame, but rather as a response to God reaching out to us and desiring to give us his grace and draw us to himself. And when we can have that fir firmly rooted uh, and planted within the heart, then amazing things can happen within the spiritual life. And we see this in the lives of the individuals in Philip Neri's time. You know, those who had led dissolute lives, you know, all of a sudden being radically transformed. And certainly we see this in those Christ calls to be his apostles. You know, today's gospel in the Eastern Rite was about Levi or Matthew, the, the tax collector. Uh, you know, one who probably experienced a great deal of shame uh, as being a betrayer of his own people and uh, as, you know, one who was uh, extorting money from them, who had aligned himself with the Romans uh, to encounter, it must have been a powerful thing to encounter perfect love and compassion in Christ, enough to make him drop everything and he was likely pretty wealthy, lead him to drop everything and follow this itinerant preacher. And I think images like this are important for us to take hold of because then they allow us to do the same thing in our own life, to drop everything that becomes an impediment to our freely embracing the love and the mercy that God desires to give us. Uh, Irene writes, Father, how would a scrupulous person go about being constantly repentant with peace of soul? It's an excellent question that, you know, scrupulosity can be very painful. And it is often rooted in a kind of obsessive compulsive mindset 
that uh, makes it very hard to believe that one's sins are forgiven even after they've been confessed. Uh, and so a person not even choosing to do so will be held there. And I think it's important for them to be able to work with a confessor that is familiar with those who struggle with scrupulosity so that the specific spiritual disciplines don't uh, drive them further into it, that they would want to have a confessor that would be able to help them see that what has been confessed before does not need to be confessed again, to help them to trust in the mercy of God, or to distinguish between what is a sin and what is not a sin, to give them spiritual counsel or spiritual disciplines that allow them to see that mercy of God and that gentleness and tenderness uh, very clearly. I think one of the most powerful things, and you know, having been a Latin rite priest for so many years, it was uh, uh, Eucharistic adoration, that uh, God makes himself uh, in Holy Communion, in the gift of himself in the Eucharist, so non-threatening, so small, uh, that a person can approach him uh, without fear or anxiety. And the moment that one steps into the presence of the Lord in such a way, uh, that becomes a very tangible experience. And I've seen it even with those who are non-Catholic and have, had, have no belief, specific belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, come into a chapel where the Eucharist is exposed and ex experience the presence of God in a profound fashion, and even start coming to adoration on a daily basis. And it's not, they're, they're experiencing something very powerful and present there, as powerful as Matthew experienced, and perhaps even more so, uh, because there uh, is no impediment, especially when we are able to receive Holy Communion, there is no impediment to uh, our uh, to Christ entering into those deepest parts that we uh, that He in our receiving Him into our our very selves that He can go where we, we, there might be even a profound resistance within us and bring great healing. So to expose a person to something like adoration and frequent communion, I think, is something that allows then this constant repentance. Uh, to be a, a movement of love, and they feel a pull or that begin to experience a pull or that urgency of love. I think also exposing them to certain writings of particular saints that are of the colloquy form, and I don't know if you uh, have ever experienced a work called Divine Intimacy or the writings of uh, a French priest named Gaston Courtois, uh, or in the East, it would be St. Nicholas uh, Vellimer. Somebody help me out with the pronunciation of his last name. Vellimerovich. Vellimerovich. Prayer, prayers by the Lake. And the colloquy form is this kind of dialogue between the soul and God. And they're ever so beautiful and powerful. And I think for a person who would struggle with scrupulosity and uh, have a hard time seeing the tenderness and love of God, these prayers that arise out of saintly souls, 
And these reflections that arise out of saintly souls can be a very powerful source of healing for them. So those are just a couple of things that come to mind. And then David writes, the past few years, I have also focused on taking time in prayer and adoration to express gratitude and thanksgiving. Isn't it equally important to give thanks as to deepen, I'm sorry, as to deepen repentance, as to deepen repentance? No amount of regret changes the past. No amount of worry will change the future, but any gratitude will change the present. Uh, it's a very good comment, and uh, when we look to the Eastern writers in particular, their sense of repentance, of contrition, of compunction is always tied to this return to the experience of intimacy with God. And there's a specific Greek word that they use for it that isn't really translatable into the English uh, for us, and that's unfortunate, but it's something like sorrowful joy, that the sorrow that one experiences and that arises out of contrition for our sins leads us back into the embrace of God, and that the image is more like that of the story of the prodigal son, where the father is scanning the horizon looking for the son, and when he catches sight of him, runs out and throws himself on his neck and kisses him, clothes him with the best robes, you know, slaughters the, the fattened calf. That, uh, and so their sense of repentance never ends with uh, this experience of regret, that there is a fluid movement that is to exist there within the relationship with God, that the repentance is to lead us back to intimacy, that we are to see this as relational. And this is important. I think when, uh, you know, our sense of sin becomes merely legalistic, that we've, you know, broken a certain law uh, and that we have to make reparation for that, we can get stuck in this sense of regret or our inability uh, to experience healing and uh, never come to experience that joy that the, the fathers speak of. It's always a curious thing to me, and I've mentioned this in, in past groups, that people will often look at the Desert Fathers as having this negative anthropology, of having this kind of harsh asceticism and harsh view of the spiritual life. But the language that we find in them is this language of desire, this language of mercy, of love, and of turning back toward God. And it's not endurance or self-punishment. It's healing. In fact, primary in the thought of the Eastern Fathers and in the Eastern churches as a whole is that the church is a hospital and to be viewed as a hospital, a place that where we are find healing, and it's through the sacramental life and through the ascetical life that we, that healing balm is applied. And so there isn't this tendency uh, to make some of the distinctions that we often do in the West that I think might either foster this kind of scrupulosity or regret that we find ourselves mired in and that prevents us from either expressing, as you said, this gratitude to God because we've never experienced the mercy of God and the, the depth of his compassion. 
And so it would be very foreign uh, and incomprehensible to them to think about repentance in that way. And it's a good thing to keep in mind. Okay. Why don't we move on with the, the text there? Very good questions, ex excellent comments. Um, let's see, paragraph two on the second page. Uh, in a sense, all the teaching of the church is a single call to repentance in the most profound sense of that term. That is, it is a call, a call to rebirth, to a complete reassessment of all values, to a new understanding and vision of life in the light of Christ. And that last little phrase, I think there is key, in the light of Christ, that we are to constantly be reflecting upon what we have become in and through him. To keep our eyes fixed upon him, uh, Dostoevsky talks about beauty saving the world. And he also speaks about Christ as being the most beautiful person that ever existed. And so to keep our eyes focused upon him, to gaze upon him, to listen to him, is to see that which is most beautiful and come to desire it for, for ourselves. And so there is this constant rebirth that is to be taking place within us. Every time we receive the grace of the sacraments, every time we turn to God, every time we receive the Holy Eucharist, there is a, a, a rebirth of that reality uh, and a, a renewal uh, that takes place within us. And even such things the fathers talk about uh, like tears of, of repentance or like uh, a second baptism, St. John Climacus says, that there is a purifying of the mind and the heart uh, that allows us to see then clearly the depth and the mercy of God and to find our way back to him. It was not coincidentally that John the Baptist often repeated the words repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christ began his sermon with the same words. And so the very first words out of our Lord's mouth, his, his first sermon, if you will, the first thing that he says to the crowds is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, turn yourself around completely and open your eyes to see that your God is present among you. According to the venerable St. Ephraim the Syrian, repentance is a field to be cultivated at all times. Repentance is the tree of life, resurrecting those dead in sin. Elsewhere, he states, through repentance, earth has become heaven, for it has become filled with saints. I don't think I ever heard you know, for even in my first, you know, 20 years as a, a, a Catholic, repentance described in this in these ways. Uh, the Syriac writers in particular have only, their, the fullness of their writings have really only become accessible to us in more recent times in English. And I'm grateful for that, in particular, Isaac the Syrian. But Ephraim, is extraordinary as well in terms of the beauty of his writing. And I think this captures it so well for us. Earth has become heaven for it's become filled with saints. This, this turning toward God 
allows us to take hold of once again what God desires for for us the most. And so again, it is not to be something that leads us into shame or self-doubt, but just the opposite, to greater and greater clarity in terms of not only God's mercy, but our identity in him. And this is why Paul describes you know, the, the faithful as saints. And this is how we are to see ourselves as well, that we are living this new life in Christ. And constantly called to enter into that and be drawn back into it if we've in any way turned away from it or neglected it. In his book, A Priest Observations, Father Alexander Alkaninov, an experienced spiritual director, writes, Without our constant control over the spirit, confession, which takes place occasionally, is not successful. The eye of the spirit, conscience, demands exercise, and without it, you will see neither yourself nor your sins. According to the Venerable Isaac the Syrian, he who has been able to see himself has accomplished more than one who has seen the angels. And he also wrote, one who apprehends his sin is better than one who through his prayers raises the dead. So, Again, extraordinary things from the saints, and again, uh, one of the Syrians. Uh, this is one of the better-known uh, sayings of St. Isaac, that a person who has the capacity to see his own sins is greater than he who can raise a person from the dead. That our capacity to see our sin allows us to turn back to God. It allows us to repent. And to, again, experience the fullness of that life. This is why we find Christ railing uh, so often, trying to penetrate the, the pride of the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you remember, it's after they accuse him of healing somebody by the power of Beelzebul that Christ teaches about the unforgivable sin. And it's because, precisely, that they attribute evil to what is good, that they attribute the healing and the casting out of a demon, uh, not to God, but to the evil one. And so it shows that their conscience has become so distorted that what is good seems to be evil, and what is evil seems to be good. And whenever that happens, the, the worst of things takes place. And that is that repentance becomes something that's an impossibility, that our conscience can't guide us in the right direction back toward God. And uh, so this is why it's called the unforgivable sin. Not that God does not show mercy or desire to give that mercy, is that the person has been so immersed in pride that the heart and the conscience has become so darkened that they're not able to see their sin or to see God or to be able to turn back to him. And so we have in the Gospels, you know, those who are so deeply immersed in the mire of their sin, you know, those who are prostitutes, 
those who were tax collectors, those who were at the fringe and the margins of society, you know, or those regarded by the scribes and the Pharisees as the hoi polloi, the, the people of the fields, those who couldn't possibly keep the law in its fullness, and so not faithful, not faithful Jews. And it was this kind of hardness of heart that prevented them from seeing he was the Lord of life before them. In fact, uh, then to treat him as uh, a blasphemer and as a heretic and ultimately uh, to call for his death uh, because they could not see the presence of, of God within him. And so in the spiritual life, we, we begin to see this is the only thing that we are to be wary of, that through our neglect, through our turning away from God, and that our hearts would be hardened in such a way, or that our consciences would be distorted, that we would no longer be able to see the goodness of God and his love. And, uh, you know, we live in a world that is enamored, uh, you know, with the self, with the ego, uh, with the satisfying of the appetites and personal desires to the exclusion of God. And uh, just reality and perception of reality as well as morality is becoming so distorted that uh, it's becoming very difficult for people to be able to see truth, even when it is before them. And so we have a lot to pray about, not simply for others in the world around us, but for ourselves, that we do not be, we uh, do not become drawn into this, uh, again, through our neglect of God and the, ne the neglect of prayer. And the things here that Alkaninoff is speaking about, uh, the, the, the formation of the conscience uh, and the exercise of the conscience, which means forming it through the re reading and the study of the scriptures, through the frequenting of the sacraments, through reading the writings of the saints, through all the spiritual disciplines that are available to us, fasting, vigils, all the things that would sensitize the conscience and make it more attentive to the presence of God and the voice of God. Any comments or questions at this point before we move on? Okay. Saints Ephraim and Isaac and other spiritual strugglers after piety all recommend that in doing battle with sin, it is best to begin with the sin which is most which most grievously attacks us. To the extent that we are rid of it, our conscience will see all the more. Moreover, it always behooves Christians to do battle against those sins which directly oppose love. The Holy Fathers of the Church teach that hatred, enmity, and condemnation utterly seal shut the gates of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love. Thus, the first condition of true repentance is reconciliation with everyone. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, the Christ included the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is why the Eastern Rites of the Church began Great Lent with the forgiveness, with Forgiveness Sunday, when believers ask forgiveness of one another for personal insults and offenses, 
so that with a clear conscience, they might begin Lent, their invisible warfare. The church teaches that true love is indivisible and that dislike for a single person will ultimately, will ultimately poison love. Theophan the Recluse writes, in one who is at odds with anyone else, all friendship is fragile, easily turns to enmity. Of course, by bearing enmity, one cannot really love God. God is complete love and tolerates nothing that is opposed to love. Uh, so a nice follow-up, I think, to the previous paragraph, and, and in particular, the Council of uh, Alkaninov, that the exercise of conscience that focusing in on our primary passion, the thing that we struggle with the most. Uh, sometimes when we go to confession out of shame or embarrassment, we'll leave that to the last, the last little thing that we'll say, and oh yes, I did this. Or we'll stick it in between in the middle and say it really quickly and then move on to other things. Whereas in confession, the best practice is to bring forward or in spiritual direction, to bring forward the things or the thoughts or the actions that we struggle with the most, to lay them before God in the full light of truth that we might know healing. And it is in that humbling of self uh, that we are told here that the conscience comes to see with even greater clarity. Humility means truthful living. And so when we, hum when we humbly acknowledge the truth, then obviously the, the conscience, our capacity to know with God is going to be strengthened and deepened as well. And the second point here is the primacy of love. And that love is not something that is, uh, can be carved up, uh, that uh, there is a, a radical unity there that love of God and neighbor are the great commandment. They've been combined as one. And uh, to, to receive love and to give ourselves in love are intimately tied together. And also to withhold love then is also to experience uh, a lack of capacity to receive all that God would desire to give us too. The more that we close our hearts to love to another individual, we're not simply closing the, our hearts to them, but also to God who dwells within them. And we never want to lose sight of that. That's why we're told in the gospel, if you come to the altar and there remember, uh, you know, a, a sin against your brother or that there is division there, leave your gift, go be reconciled and then come and offer your, your gift to God. Uh, it might be the, the least practiced teaching and we don't tend to focus upon it, I think, as much as we should. And what is mentioned here about uh, the great fast in the Eastern Rites, the, the practice of Forgiveness Sunday, I think is a beautiful thing uh, because it takes what we do within something like confession and even within, say, the Latin Rite Mass, the, the uh, act of contrition, the penitential rite. It takes that, though, and makes it a very concrete, personal reality right at the beginning of Lent, 
So as we engage, as he says here, in our interior warfare, we are turning in a concrete way to the people standing next to us in church and asking them for forgiveness, you know, for the times that we've insulted them or uh, hurt them in any way, neglected them, that, that with sincerity of heart that we would seek to overcome any impediment to love. It's really a beautiful thing. And to be practiced in a deep, deep way can be truly transformative. The commandments in the gospel, while easy, appear difficult for human consciousness. Having fallen out of sync with life and harmony is clouded. For example, people consider the gospel commandment to love friend and enemy alike to be difficult. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We see that no limits to good are imposed upon man in this commandment, one given to those who wish to rise above both their own and mankind's selfishness, to be healed and to depart from the state of sin. So in the very commandments of God, we are, are shown that we are given this capacity to rise above our limitation as human beings, that we are given the capacity to rise above the natural level of loving in terms of loving our family members, our friends, those who are close to us, and to love on a supernatural level where there would be no impediment, nothing that would prevent us from loving even our enemies, even those who do us harm physically. And this is what we are called to. And in the very uh, act of being called to it, we are also being, or we are also given the grace to live it. And uh, too often, I think we, we allow this to become an abstraction for us. And in the same way that we allow the phrases, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, or be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful, to become abstractions for us as well, rather than a specific call and uh, uh, something that speaks to us directly of the will of God. And when we speak of the will of God, we, we speak of that which brings about uh, what is willed and is, gives what is willed. So uh, Jesus uses, so even if we don't see it within ourselves, Jesus uses the future indicative when speaking in those terms. And so he's saying, you will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or you will be merciful as your heavenly father will uh, is merciful that it is the most natural thing in the mind of god that this be so and it god is god who wills it and so it will be so and we have to live our lives uh in light of that truth that in god in giving these commands will make it so and it's not dependent upon our strength uh but rather upon the strength and the grace that he gives us. That when we receive the Holy Eucharist, it is Christ's virtue and his strength that becomes our virtue and our strength. 
that we are we cease to be mere human beings, if you will, the, the moment that we say amen and the moment that we receive the Holy Eucharist, at that moment, we enter into this radical union and communion that gives us this capacity to love with a godly love. And again, you know, if, if our repentance isn't such that we are constantly making this turn toward God and to that reality, it's, it's going to, again, to be something that becomes an abstraction for us very quickly or something that seems to be an impossibility out of reach. How could God possibly ask something like that? And our understanding of it is that God could ask something like that because he's already given us exactly what we need to live that and that it dwells within us. And that all that is required is that we take hold of it and have faith in it. Let us try to list those who have caused us some annoyance or insult, who have dealt with us poorly or spoken ill of us. In other words, let us recall those who are not to our liking. And forgiving each of them, let us sincerely pray for these souls. Let us drive out any grudge or irritation we bear them and wish them well. Given the opportunity, let us say something nice about them to others. At every opportunity, let us help them. And so again, going back to you know, Alkaninov's counsel of exercising the conscience that we want to exercise this call to love uh, in concrete ways that we take hold of the grace that is given to us and seek to allow it to bear the most fruit that it possibly can. So to speak nice of others, to think upon them well, to pray for them, even if that's the only thing that we can do, or to keep our lips shut when we are filled with frustration and anger towards them, that we aren't venting that to others in order to detract from their characters. Or, in fact, that we would do the opposite, we are told here, that we would try to raise them in the estimation of others, in the eyes of others. And so, again, you know, our faith life is not uh, a passive reality, that it is something that is to be exercised. Our faith is essentially ascetic. An essential aspect of Christianity is that it's an ascetical religion, that we are to exercise our faith, that we are to exercise the grace that is given to us in order that we might be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, to conform our minds to him. Missy White writes, that's a tough pill to swallow, especially in what has become such a narcissistic culture. How I needed this conference. Thank you. It is. You know, it is a tough pill uh, in, in our day, and I think this is why we can't allow it simply to be a pill. Uh, sometimes even our reception of the Holy Eucharist can seem like that to us. We're receiving a shot of something that we need to help us get through the week or to endure the things that are difficult for us. Uh, when in reality, what we are receiving is not a pill, 
and it's not even this uh, uh, grace-filled shot that helps us, you know, get through the work week or in, in, endure or tolerate the intolerable person, but it is something that is transforming us, transfiguring us into God, to love as he loves, to participate in the life of the, of the Holy Trinity, deification. And so we have to move away I think even in our understanding of grace from this sense that we often have of commodifying it. We do this often with the Holy Eucharist. We, we treat it as uh, a, a commodity, something that we go to church every week to receive and not even to receive, sometimes to take hold of, uh, like fast food and uh, that satisfies a kind of hunger, but we often don't ask ourselves what hunger is it really, what are we using it to satisfy? And sometimes it's uh, our own insecurities or to give us a self, uh, a sense of assurance and a life that is difficult, but not drawing us into this profound relationship with God in the most intimate way. And, uh, you know, I mentioned recently, I don't know if it was in a group or a homily about Chrysostom saying that we do well once in our life to experience a kind of fear and trepidation come over us when it comes to receiving Holy Communion, because it reveals that we, we've come to see the tremendous mystery into which we are drawn in the re reception of it, that we aren't taking it for granted or holding it cheap. Not that Chrysostom would want us to fear it, but that he would want us to understand the magnitude of what God has given us and that we would seek to prepare ourselves to receive it as fully as we possibly can. Art writes, helpful reminder for me at times, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become uh, children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right. Uh, so quoting there from, from John, that we are, are born of the will of God, that we have become a new creation in, in what has been given to us and what flows to us from, from the cross. Bonnie Lewis writes, I found that when I pray for someone who is causing me to harbor a resentment towards them, I'm the one who changes internally. The other person may remain exactly how they were, yet I've received a peace of mind and thought toward them. This doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it takes sometimes, and yes, I agree, sometimes it would take decades. Uh, but you know, I think what takes place there is that we are drawn into the, the reality of the kingdom, or we begin to experience that reality that dwells within us more and more fully. And so we begin to experience something of its invincible peace and its invincible joy. So if we're able to forgive within our hearts another, if we're able to, to look upon them with love or simply to pray for them, 
then we are drawn more deeply into that piece of the kingdom that no one and no one, no thing can take from us. So as you said, that even though that individual might not change in terms of how they engage us, that what changes is that we are drawn more deeply into the love of God and the love of the kingdom. And so our experience of life, of reality, including that other person, begins to change. That becomes the lens through which we view everything. Thus, as we, are we at the paragraph that starts with thus? I'm sorry, I lost my place there. Yes, okay. Thus, as we will see for ourselves, fulfilling the commandment of love will engender a joyous feeling of spiritual freedom and profound peace. Many internal difficulties will depart from us, for we will have fulfilled the Christ's words, believed in God and given heed, him heed. The power of good will, good will rejoice within us. Even if we do not immediately notice this peace within ourselves, it will certainly come to us as a reflection of our charity. So this is exactly what Bonnie was talking about and what I think we begin to experience, we begin to make our way through life, even when it is chaotic around us, but the re reality in which we are immersed is the peace of the kingdom. And so tangibly others should see within us, and we should begin to see within us something of that calm and that peace of the kingdom. Or even if we don't see it ourselves, others should see it. At times, God in his providence prevents us from seeing it in order that we might cling to him. But others should really see the, the transformation in us, the joyfulness uh, within us. We know that many, for many, the countenance of the saints changed, that they could see something of the glory of the kingdom shining within them, you know, within their eyes or within their speech, that they, they could see something has changed and find comfort even within it. That a person is kind, honest, and generous always seems miraculous. Yes, it is a miracle, and a miracle far greater than moving a mountain. Something greater than a mountain is being moved, human selfishness. Such is the effect on man of our faith in God, our trust in the Lord, our repentance before Christ, when one who hates becomes one who loves, when a liar becomes truthful, when a vain person becomes modest, it is truly a miracle. Charity emanating from us first of all liberates us from all our own evil. It opens within us the doors and windows through which flows the pure air of heaven. This is the rebirth born of repentance. Isn't that extraordinary how far we've come, even from the first paragraphs of this reflection to this point, that, uh, that repentance is seen as a rebirth that opens up for us the doors, the windows of the kingdoms of the kingdom, and allows us to experience more freely the joy and the peace of that kingdom. And so far from something that shames us, so far from something that ends with regret, what we experience is the most profound miracle take place within the human heart, but also so, something that draws us into a greater intimacy with God. And so this is where, where we begin to 
develop this understanding of it being a continual effort, that there is a constancy that we want to see develop and a love for this virtue in particular, that we do not simply seek it out as a discipline, but we seek it out as something that promises us this, that we would love it so much, that we would cherish it so much, be precisely because it brings us to God and it overcomes the things that have often become an impediment to us. In repentance, we see the operation not of natural forces, but of supernatural grace-filled ones. And the only one who believes in the light can take into himself true love. According to biological law, man, men engage only in a struggle for survival. But according to the law of the spirit, the battle is for the resurrection of the world, a spiritual battle which conquers selfishness, spiritual death. The Christ calls us to overcome our evil will and animal nature, to become human in the full spiritual sense of the term. The human soul is immeasurably greater than matter. And the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Such great and marvelous words. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Through the faith granted us, we are called to be centered internally, mentally, not on our own little selfish personality, but on the power of the living God, the true Christ Jesus who dwells within us. You see what I'm saying about this writer, whoever wrote this, you know, this arises out of not only a knowledge of the fathers, but I think out of experiential knowledge, the, the clarity with, with, with which he puts it uh, speaks to that and uh, the confidence within his words. Uh, that this clarity about not only being engaged in our own spiritual warfare, our own spiritual battle, but his seeing here very clearly that repentance is also tied to the radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and every other person. And that our fighting the good fight of faith, our living by the strength of Christ, strengthens all of humanity. And with that should come a deepening of our love of every human being and a desire that all would come to experience that fullness of life in Christ. So our, our vision of the world, as well as our vision of ourselves, should radically change through this gift of repentance through this turning toward God. Again, not because of what we're doing, but this turning toward God is what gives us this new lens through which we view the world ourselves and even sin, even the depth of our own sin and the depth of the sin of others. To look upon that with the love and the mercy of God and to desire to bring the fullness of God's grace to bear upon it, to be a source of healing for others by the way that we live our lives. The creator and father who brought us into being granted, brought us into being granted to our souls, the freedom to make free moral choice, to turn to him and to repent of our sins, which constitute a betrayal of God's truth. 
Yes, man is sometimes unfaithful to God. Even if we do not frankly renounce God, we sometimes obliquely become betrayers of Christ, of his love and truth. Let us repent of that. So even on an unconscious level, when we, we have to be humble, because on this unconscious level, there are so many ways that we can become betrayers of love. Uh, I, I like how he put it there. So sometimes obliquely we become betrayers of Christ, of his love and his truth, that not even seeing it clearly, we can turn away from him simply by turning away from others, turning away from the need of someone, uh, or even simply ignoring their presence. Because if other, every person is a God-bearer, if everyone is, has become this temple of the Holy Spirit through Christ, then we have to uh, exercise the conscience in such a way that we see that truth. And whenever we lose sight of that, whenever we ignore it and treat individuals as uh, obstacles to our fulfillment, uh, obstacles to our happiness and joy, then we are in subtle ways betrayers of love and betrayers of Christ. Because as we said, we cannot, this bifurcation can't exist. We have to see this love of God and neighbor as intimately uh, and uniquely tied together. Let us reflect on how imperfect is our consciousness and let us repent before God. Through repentance, the pure path to God is opened. Moreover, let us not tarry, for no one knows when his final hour will come. There's nothing more important and more needed than repentance and God's saving forgiveness. So nothing more important that we would cultivate in our own lives, nothing more important for ourselves and nothing more important for the world. And I think this author shows that he understands the, the things that Dostoevsky wrote, you know, about as our love and our acknowledgement of the love and the beauty of God's love deepens, then our love, not only for God, but for all of creation, uh, should begin to manifest itself. And so repentance, this turning toward God, is not only something that should be continuous, but we are told here then that it's the most important of things because we aren't just turning towards something in general. We're turning towards he who is the source of life, of truth, of love. And so this virtue is something that we should love as well and cherish. I did see a comment come up here. Uh, Rachel, who wrote the book, the con A Continual Effort? Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't been able to find out. Uh, I'll work on it, though. With no temptation or battle, a soldier is not made stronger through resisting. St. Faustina, St. Therese had clear experiences of people who tried their patience. They felt the irritation. It's not like uh, the new lens that the father is speaking of will mean that someone will not need to actively practice patience, but the life of repentance, living constantly in the presence of God and truth, 
in the person drunk with compunction just simply cannot not for cannot not forgive when they see who they really are in Christ and the dignity of others as well all mankind seen through the lens of love that's right you know i'm sorry for reading it so poorly uh, because it was so beautifully said drunk with compunction just simply cannot not forgive when they see who they really are in Christ that it becomes an impossibility for us not to love the other when we understand our true dignity and identity in him. You know, if this were preached from the pulpit, you know, even in the smallest way, you would think it would set us on fire, you know, to be able to see with a kind of clarity, the dignity, and destiny that is ours in Christ, what, what we've been made to become. You know, this morning we were reading, uh, I mentioned to you from Anthony Conierius and talking about this inner closet, but he quoted St. Gregory of Nyssa saying the God who has created all things and the entire universe, the cosmos, able to hold them in the palm of his hand has given himself to us and dwells within us. So he that who can hold all things and has created all things has made himself such that he dwells within us. So the fullness of that kingdom dwells within the human heart. And, you know, if this alone were our meditation for Lent, it would take us a great distance in the spiritual life or even to take this one reflection from this author, I think it would take us a, you know, it would be a great resource for us. There's a wonderful little writing out there uh, called the ascetic heart. And it is a kind of colloquy and we'll make it available uh, at some point uh, in a booklet form, but it's this sort of a dialogue between a father and his son about the ascetic life and why uh, why the father does and embraces all these things in his life. And it's so beautiful. It's very much like this, but much longer and much more personal. I know of people who read it every single day of their life and have done so for years uh, because of the impact that it's had upon them. And uh, when I heard that the first time, my jaw sort of dropped, but it tells us something important, that it's the quality of something that is important, not the quantity. And so reading something like that, or reading something, a line from the scriptures a day, or St. Paisius, you know, as we know, read a paragraph of St. Isaac the Syrian for 25 years, just one paragraph a day, that that was enough to sustain and nourish him. And uh, I think that's important for us to understand. We've been taught to read, uh, uh, to gain information, to skim, to absorb information. And I think that hobbles us in the spiritual life. We need to slow down and to read, you know, one sentence, one paragraph, one word. Uh, there's a great tradition of that with 
you know, within the spiritual tradition of, of Lexio Divina, you know, of, of prayerfully con and contemplatively reading the scriptures and praying about them. It's for this reason I've tried to make the, the books that we read a kind of group Lexio Divina, you know, that our reading of Climacus or our reading of the Evergatinos would take us 10 years and we wouldn't care because it's every paragraph is so beautiful. And that's where we need to go. One modern elder said, there are only three things that you need to read, sacred scriptures, the Evergatinos, and the Ladder of Divine Ascent. If that's all you've had, you're in perfect position. And so slow down, take hold of what is most beautiful. And, and this little reflection, I think, is one of them. So I hope that you'll hold on to it, you know, long after uh, this group and go back to it. And I hope this was fruitful for you. Any final comments or questions before we close for the night? Okay, very good. Well, thank you for joining, uh, joining us here. And uh, we'll try to do this, I think, regularly. I, I enjoy to have, you know, special topics for Philicalia Ministries that might allow us to broaden things out to, and to explore things with greater depth on occasion. Not weekly. I'm not doing it weekly. Uh, I can't do more than two groups a week. So, okay, why don't we close with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.